Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Um, wonderful. It's going to be one of those shows tonight, Conrad. It's going to be one of those shows. I'm telling you right now. Wait, what does that mean? You're going to be argumentative. You're going to be fussy. It, it, it mean, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know yet. I don't know. I've got a uh, Fiji water bottle full of um, fruit punch Gatorade mix. So that's okay. Um, and uh, but the big one, like the giant bottle. And then I got uh, and I'm, I'm in L.A. So you'll hear like sirens and horns bonking and all kinds of shit outside the, the old window here. And uh, um, it's a beautiful thing. So, hey, since you're in New and York, I'm doing it on my phone. Yeah, this is totally different. We're using Skype on your phone. That's how committed we are to this. We, uh, tried to tape and, and record before Bruce went West. And then we even had plans of trying to do it last night, pre SmackDown, but you and I are recording just moments after SmackDown finished. What'd you think, Bruce? Good show. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous show. And, uh, we're hoping for Absolutely. the same today. We're hoping we're going to have a good show, <laughs> but I appreciate your commitment to making it happen. Uh, and now tomorrow you're headed to like my favorite place and it'll be your first time, huh? Yes. Old Cabo San Luco. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think, man. Well, we've, uh, we had a little hidden gym and now it's going away, but something to wrestle is here to stay. And man, we're not going to rent it out anymore. The new owners. Now, I mean, the word I heard was she might in the future, but, uh, yeah, it's shut down. So no more VRBO and Airbnb or what, what have you for uh. them. So I'm the last one of the last ones. Yeah. We were the last of the previous owners before they sold, but the new owners, so they were going to, you know, honor the dates and, and you're the last one this year. So after that, no moss. So Holy enjoy. Cow. Well, let's hope well, that we can enjoy today's show too. This is my favorite period uh, of my wrestling fandom. I had just gotten back into wrestling in August of 96 and man, I was just knee deep. I think. You can go back and look at this era of Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. And man, these guys are just on fire. Stone cold is now on the rise and all of a sudden Sid comes out of nowhere 
Of course, you and I have talked about this pay-per-view for a long time, because as we know, the rumor and innuendo is originally, this was supposed to be a trilogy between Shawn Michaels and Vader that went SummerSlam survivor series and Royal rumble, but plans change Conrad. That's what we say here on the show all the time. So instead it became Sid. So even though the show is called in your house, it's time, which of course was what Vader used to say. He's not actually on the card. Instead, Sid is our world champion. It's one of the great sort of shoulda, woulda, couldas of WWE. Is it not? Well, Conrad, sometimes things happen and on any given night, anything can happen anywhere in the world. So, I mean, you know, Sid, we, we, we thought, you know, Hey man, Vader's on a roll. He might beat Sean. So you go with that. But then Sid came along and, and Sid became number one contender and he won the WWE championship. It's just shit happens sometimes. I want to mention too, that in this era, you know, this is very much the pay-per-view era. So you had to get way in advance your, your posters and your promotional material and all that stuff to viewers choice and, and in demand and, and all those different sort of pay-per-view services and, and middlemen, if you will, for the cable systems and satellite TV. So you, you sort of had to know where you were going ahead of time. And at this point you're sort of stuck with in your house, it's time, maybe in a different era, we could have made that adjustment and it would have been called something else maybe, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, it was during the time that you usually had to have all of your promotional materials to the different cable companies and you would send them to, we we would ultimately be responsible for sending them to the cable company so that they could then put them and air them to get people to, uh, order their order your pay-per-view in advance. Um, but we were able to, to do that and, and you were able to, to, uh, be 90 days out in front and get all your materials out there. And if things changed, then we would send promos and send things, um, to the cable company directly, but that wasn't good enough. In addition to sending out new materials, a lot of times we would send people directly to the cable companies where we had sent tapes before and pick up the old tapes so that they couldn't run the old stuff. Got it. So it's not good enough to just say, Hey, here's new, put this in your rotation and, and, uh, and this is what you air. No, we would say, okay, um, here's what you air, but send us back the other stuff. I want to mention, uh, there's a lot going on here. A lot of moving parts in professional wrestling. Uh, Meltzer would say the latest on shotgun Saturday night is that it's scheduled for a January 4th start date. While this hasn't been officially confirmed, my belief is they have a TV deal done and are keeping it quiet for fear. WCW will try and buy it out because you don't book buildings a few weeks out on the hopes you can at the last minute, put together a TV deal. The show will air live at midnight on Saturday nights and be put up on satellite. It'll air live on a syndicated network. They're attempting to put together on both Eastern and central time and on a three hour tape delay on the West coast with Vince McMahon and Todd Pettengill, most likely as announcers, McMahon, Bruce Pritchard, and Paul Heyman went to scout various nightclubs in New York city to revolve tapings in, although Heyman is not an official consultant for the show. It wouldn't be a shock to see him have some sort of involvement in it. 
What's interesting about that is McMahon had heavily criticized WCW for the expense of going live every week because of the six figure costs each week of doing such a show. And now he's doing it himself with similar costs of going live, but doing a syndicated show that has the added expense of perhaps having to buy time, having to put together a syndicated network that will almost surely not reach as many homes as TNT and being put in a time slot where it's going to be basically impossible to draw the kind of ratings WCW does with its live show. So they can't make nearly as much selling ads for the show. In addition, by running a live show on at midnight on Saturday, it'll mean the WWF has to water down its Saturday night shows. Since some of the stars will have to be pulled from the tour each week and Saturday night is theoretically the most profitable night for house shows. Bruce, we've talked a lot about shotgun Saturday night, but never really the business side of that. And what Meltzer just said made a lot of sense to me, but I know because I said, Dave's name, you're going to fuss and throw a fit now. So your turn. Why would I fuss and throw a fit? Um, because obviously he didn't understand the economics of it. And we still continued to run live events, uh, in different parts of the country. And we, the show was an hour show and we were looking for the novelty of having a live show in New York city in clubs in these different atmospheres. And we used a skeleton crew. So we would bring, you know, certain guys from the tour that would come in and we didn't use the same guys. So for example, if your main event was going to be Bret Hart to get people there, then undertaker was headlining live events, things like that. That was the philosophy behind it. So, um, again, not understanding our business and just trying to speculate it from afar and not really understanding how business works. Sometimes that's where people get in trouble with rumor and innuendo. Um, we weren't getting any revenue, you know, the clubs got, got the revenue and we were able to come in and, uh, our cost was, yes, it was a production cost, but it was down and dirty. It was nothing like it was nothing compared to raw or nitro or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean it was a fraction of that. It was, it was a skeleton crew. It was a skeleton truck. It was it was a satellite truck, and you had a uh, you did have a TV truck, but I mean we had a quarter of the staff that we would normally have for a, a full blown television taping. When you started Shotgun Saturday Night, did you think it might be, you know, for lack of a better word, a loss leader? Where, Hey, maybe this is not going to be a hugely financially successful, but it would give us a little bit of edge. Maybe, maybe some of that ECW feel that cool feel. Um, I don't know. Nitro was definitely, it had the, the reputation of being the cooler show. I mean, at the time, the NWO is white hot. You're playing catch up ball. And it does feel like with the influence of Paul Heyman, maybe this is less about let's be as profitable as we can. And more about, Hey man, let's just try to get some of our edge back. Was that some of the thinking? No, I mean, yes and no, but I mean, Heyman wasn't involved in it at all with the exception of going with us, uh, to look at nightclubs the first night. Heyman had zero involvement in this at all. Okay. Pretend I didn't say Heyman is the, everything else I said pretty close to accurate. I just don't see how this is hugely profitable on a syndicated network in the middle of the night on a weekend, unless you're just trying to angle for that quote unquote ECW style. You wanted to be no, we weren't, cool. Yeah, and, it wasn't the ECW style. We were angling. We were angling for that younger audience that may have to be in at midnight. That you know, hey, you're coming home at midnight on Saturday night. Which you look at that a lot of times. That's when you know those kids are looking for something else. And it was 
it, it was live midnight. It was kind of like the Saturday night special. You know, you had to tune in and, and see what the hell was going on. And really, it was in the beginning, this was an experiment to, to see, you know, will this nudge a new audience to, to kind of check it out and sample it? Because you were playing to a completely different audience than your normal syndication and your primetime cable audience. You're syndicating it. You're going live live. And you're presenting a different show from a different locale every week. Who would have and it been was a different feel? Who would have been trying to spearhead a syndicated network for Shotgun Saturday Night in this era? Oh God, I have no idea. I don't. There've been so many of those that that have been through the syndication and heading that up. I I don't know if it was Mike Ortman at that time or who the hell it was. Well, we know ultimately it's going to have a a shelf life the way you're shooting it. And then it's going to change and it's going to be something that you guys do whenever you're doing traditional raw tapings. Why was it scrapped so quickly? Was it just a failed experiment? Was it too taxing to get talent together? Did it affect house shows or just, was it a money loser? It it was the reality of, all right, we've got pay-per-views now on Sundays and to try and do a show from New York city on a Saturday night and then go wherever it is that you're hosting a pay-per-view on Sunday basically became just not feasible. So we experimented with, you know, the denim and diamonds in San Antonio. We, we experimented with different locales on the road and, you know, some worked, some didn't, but then, you know, it kind of became, um, all right, we have the syndicated time slot and is it, is it really worth the trouble to, you got live events. Okay. And if you're going to pull Brett off of that, or you're going to pull undertaker off of that, is that worth the potential loss on the live events to bring them in to do a shotgun Saturday night? Um, and it, it eventually got down to dollars and cents. We can produce it essentially for free. It, a television taping. And it's, you know, it's another hour of, um, uh, of taping, which, you know, equates roughly maybe 30 minutes of action in the arena. So you, you could do that before you went live with raw and, you know, just budget wise, it made sense. And, you know, we tried it for a while, but it, it's even, even with the, the number of clubs and the number of venues that were really interested in New York, it still got down to, all right, once you hit those 19 or 20, you know, then what do you go back to those 19 or 20? And it, it just, yeah, it, it just wasn't, it was kind of a failed experiment more than anything. It just was one of those that, and, and you saw no, you know, it did decent ratings. It did okay. in syndication people bought it, but at that point, was it worth it wasn't showing any, any new audience or anything like that. So let's talk about your favorite shotgun Saturday night moment, you know, off the top of my head, there is the undertaker tombstoning Hunter Hearst Helmsley onto the escalator. There's Marlena flashing, dropping her top, flashing the Sultan to help Goldust get a win. There's the headbangers showing up as the flying nuns. 
Uh, there's the whole sunny Todd Pettengill tickle me Elmo sex tape. And then there's Terry Funk calling your mother a whore. What was your favorite? Well, my favorite, uh, was probably the flying nuns, but it, it wasn't necessarily even the debut as much as it was the vignettes that we shot. And it was, it was just so much fun. We took these guys out dressed in, in a, in a nun habit and brother love dressed as brother love in a limo and a camera and to, to go, man, I put him in, in, uh, St. Patrick's cathedral in Manhattan. Wow. Like the most, you know, this, the most famous church in New York. And I had him walk in and walk, and we shot it with real reactions from people. And I mean, you know, we shotgun Saturday night also took the connotation of we, we were doing shotgun shoots where it was run and gun and no permits, no nothing. It was like, just go shoot it and go run <laughs> and, and a lot of times literally run. And, you know, I mean, it, it was the, the things that we did without permits. You, you just, you just did it. And I think about the time that we, after the St. Patrick's cathedral and all that, you get real people's reactions. We had the nuns quote unquote arrested. Well, since we couldn't get anybody to arrest them, we just told the story that they were arrested and we had them go into a police precinct and walk in the door and then walk out of the door with me meeting them at the door. Like I had just bailed them out of jail and then walk down the street, jump in the limo and take off is you see the cops coming from behind us. Like, Hey, what the fuck is going on here? Jump in the car and take off. That was the beauty of, of shotgun Saturday night, doing those kind of things and being able to, um, the, we, you know, God, we went in, was a grand central station. I think it was with, uh, Cornette and little Vader, mini Vader, <laughs> um, in, into the bathroom. It was some of the funniest shit. First of all, to have Cornette, uh, you know, down in the subway and, and at the, the bus station and all this stuff. But then also to have Minnie Vader, who uh, was from Mexico, didn't speak any English. And Cornette, who uh, his Spanish, his Espanol was very limited uh, to I'll have a burrito with double cheese, motherfucker. Um, and, and they're trying to shoot the shit and we're shooting and, and, and sometimes we had no idea what we're going to shoot. It's like, Hey man, just, he's got, he's got to pee. You picked him up off the bus, which we like, just put him in, in with people coming off of a bus dressed in his mini Vader shit. Cornette dressed like Cornette was dressed and then <laughs> he's got to pee and Cornette's got to take him to the bathroom. Um, that kind of shit was my, my absolute, I, I fuck. I loved it. It was great. And, um, you know, New York was, is New York. It, it's, it's a, it's a great place to be able to do that kind of stuff because every corner has something you can shoot. Um, let's talk about some other things that you guys are going to be shooting, including an angle for Ahmed Johnson His uh, return. According to Meltzer is set for the raw tapings on 12, 16. Of course, we know it's actually going to happen here at in your house. He's going to do uh, a bit of an in-ring promo with Vince McMahon. 
And it says his first house show will be 1226 in Chicago. And he, he mentions the idea right now is to not book a match against Farouk for as long as possible to create more anticipation of such a match. That's sort of old school. When you have a match, you think people will pay for You don't let them touch, right? Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great uh, idea if you can actually pull it off and sometimes it's harder than it seems, but, um, without a doubt. Yeah. I think a lot of times the longer that you can keep people away and have that anticipation, the better. Let's mention survivor series. The preliminary buy rates come in. Meltzer says he's hearing between a 0.48 and a 0.58 buy rate, which he thought would have to be a huge disappointment considering it was Brett's first match back and how well promoted the show was. You guys did do a tremendous job promoting that show. Uh, I, I was so pumped for it. And then 150,000 buys. Don't get me wrong. Ton of attendance, 18,674 big old gate, $529,000. I think at that point it was the second biggest behind only WrestleMania for the year, but 150,000 was less than SummerSlam. Obviously half of what WrestleMania was. It's almost. It's uh, way down from rumble. It's even less than the king of the ring. And considering Brett once upon a time was the, the torch bearer, the flag bearer, if you will, that had to be a little disappointing, but was it that far off from what you expected? Do you think? And I, I look, I don't know what the real numbers were. And I, for damn sure know that Dave Meltzer wouldn't know what the, the real numbers were. Um, but at the same time, I think that the pivot at that time was kind of like, God, man, you're, you're, we started the story. Then we had to pivot in the middle of it. It wasn't that hot. It just wasn't. What so, about, what about Arnie Scotland? Uh, the, the report was that he collapsed backstage at survivor series. Apparently his blood sugar was low, but he was back at work just a few days later. Do you remember this? Was this a scary scene? No, it wasn't a scary scene. It was, it was Arnie had, had, uh, best I remember it was just Arnie wasn't feeling well and it was Arnie you got you got to know Arnie it, it's uh, Arnie Scolan was toughest some bitch you ever wanted to meet uh former marine he would he would uh chew tobacco smoke a cigar and and drink whiskey um and never spit um he'd fall asleep with a cigar in his mouth type of thing but he was this just double tough son of a bitch that, that just didn't, didn't sell. And if you, if you knew him and if he were sick, you would never know he was sick, but he just got to a point where we thought, Oh my God, he may be having a heart attack, but it was just simply exhaustion. And it was just simply that, you know, his, you said his blood sugar got to the point where man, it was concern. He's not the youngest guy in the, in the group. And, uh, just got him off to the hospital, but once they pumped him full of fluids and, um, everything else, man, he was ready to go. You can't, man, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. No, they do not. I was like, which, okay, I'm sorry. And I got to go here. And this one's kind of tough for me. Uh, we lost Jack Lanza and, um, this week and, um, Jack was, Jack was a man's man and Jack was, um, probably one of the most respected, uh, backstage producer agents that we ever had. And 
And again, you talk about tough and you would never know if, if there was anything wrong in Jack's life ever um, because he just forged ahead. And um, I was blessed to have been around him and learn from him and, and, and just uh, be able to call him, you know, call him a friend and um, used to go to his house out on the lake go out on his pontoon boat. We shot a prime time there one time, which was absolutely hilarious because he, he had this pontoon boat and we put all the, uh, equipment on one end of the pontoon boat and it, the equipment was so heavy. It started to tip the boat. <laughs> and now this is a big pontoon boat, but it was a lot of equipment and the damn equipment started sliding off. Like it almost went in the lake and, and Jack stopped it. And, uh, we, we, we caught it, but I don't know what the hell I'm rambling on. Cause I am, uh, we were, we were going to reach out to Jack this week and, and invite him to Minneapolis on Monday. And, um, yeah, that one just was kind of, it sucks that, uh, I didn't get that one last, one last Jack hug. Man, he, he was a uh, he was a tough guy, but it, you know, from the same mold, people like Arnie Scolan that just uh, man, they, and there was no sick, there was no I don't feel good. It was just yeah, well, let's go, <laughs> and that's what it was. You've told me some uh, tremendous stories about Lanza, and I hope one day maybe we'll do a little special bonus episode or something because I know you've got a bunch of behind the scenes stories that maybe some we can tell on the show. Maybe some we can't, but one in particular, uh, still makes me laugh. And I quote that one line. I don't know that we can say it here on the show, but Lord have mercy. I just howl with laughter. Oh, well, there's, there's the other great one that, uh, the, the, some of the young kids that were on the, on the writing team and that they would always go back to. And, and it was right about the time that, um, Godfather uh, became the Godfather, and we had the hose. But Jack would be like, you know, and he'd sit there and he'd smoke the cigarette and everything. But of course, he wouldn't smoke in the meeting. And we were talking about uh, not having the the women with Godfather anymore. And and again, we were very careful never to refer to the women that accompanied him as is anything but hoes. They were the Godfather's hoes. It was characters, and uh, we were like, well, you know, <laughs> is this something we really want to continue? And Jack's like, they love the whores. Everyone <laughs> loves the whores. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you're sitting there and, and, and he's as innocent as can be. Yes. Um, you know, thinking he's like, what, what they, they pop for the whores. Everyone <laughs> loves the whores. <laughs> and we're just like, My God. Jack, they're hoes. They're not. Oh God damn. They're with a pimp. <laughs> just like, okay man and, and but it was it was innocent as could be and, it, and he didn't realize what he was saying but everybody would would um it is classic his classic uh bobby heenan induction uh where he's talking into the microphone and then he would just turn off mic and start talking to people beside him and behind him and we're out in the audience going jack we can't hear you 
And then Bobby would go and he would. And it was beautiful. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was classic Jack. Tremendous. Let's talk and about making Bradshaw's daddy too. So that was fun. Yeah. The old, uh, the new blackjacks. What did he think? What did, what did blackjack Lanza think of the new blackjacks concept? Um, I don't think that he would have, I don't think he would have done it for anybody, but Bradshaw and Barry. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. I, I think that if you had, if you had said, Hey man, we want to make new blackjacks with two different, different people. Um, he wouldn't have done it. I think he would have, I think he would have objected to it, but, uh, he loved John and, uh, was, was very happy to, to do that for John. And, and, uh, I mean, that was tough to get Jack on camera. Jack, Oh, Jack hated being on camera. And, uh, he did that. And, uh, like I said, man, he loved Barry and he loved John. And, and that's the reason that, that he did that and endorsed it. This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Let's talk about some house shows. Uh, there's some reports in the observer that white Plains on November 20th drew 2,075 fans for just 32,000 bucks. The next day in Quebec, you drew 1732. That's right. 1,732 fans for only 28 grand on the 22nd. You're in Montreal. And this is a lot better. 6,018 fans for $121,000. On those really modest cool. gates, you know, the, the first handful and in New York by, of all places, white plains is only like a 2,500 seat arena. But the point is, how are you guys even breaking even or making money after you're paying everybody, all the expenses, the rent, all that jazz, when you're just getting $28,000 at the turnstile. Well, that would have been a big gate back in the day. And again, <laughs> when you're, when you're running those mark, when you're running those markets, uh, you know what that is, and it's to be able to run and give the guys work. Yeah, you're giving um, reps and your service. Not do anything and not have any income. But you know, White Plains was a a small building, but it was close to New York, and and it was something that you know we would run from time to time. It was almost like a it was kind of like a Poughkeepsie, smaller arena, but uh, you know, nice and tight, and uh, it was a good arena to work. I tell you that. Let's talk about, uh, some of the events you were having here in white plains. You did a 20 man miniature Royal rumble and it came down to the fake diesel crush. There's and, no fake diesel. There was diesel and Rocky Mavia. and Meltzer would say, if you can't figure out who won that, you aren't paying attention. But Mavia did do his first job in Quebec to Vader. Do you think in hindsight, obviously we know it all worked out just fine for the rock, but in hindsight. Would you have done anything differently for the debut of rock? I mean, he, he debuts at survivor series, at least on television, he's got to go on a winning streak. I mean, that's, that's sort of wrestling one Oh one. Is it not? I, I wouldn't have done anything different. No, I think that if you didn't have that, you would, you wouldn't have had the rock. If you didn't have them shitting on Rocky, my I don't know that the rock would have ever emerged. Uh, Meltzer would say Austin Penn gold us in white plains. And he received 100% cheers in Montreal. Michaels would pin mankind in the main event and Sid had a title defense pinning Austin. So Austin is already starting to turn the fans. And we're going to talk a little bit about Bret Hart a little later, because I think he's already planting the seeds to turn heel with, uh, the style of match. He's going to work on this pay-per-view we're discussing. And then the promo beforehand, he's just super frustrated, but we'll get there. Uh, another note from the observer Cassidy has changed his look and dropped the geek persona on his own as a way to get noticed basically because his contract is coming up and he recognizes at this point, he's going nowhere. Of course, Cassidy is actually the real life Al snow. Al snow has had a handful of gimmicks here in the WWF. You've told us before that Jim Ross was, a, was a big proponent for him. He was campaigning behind the scenes and for whatever reason, it just never caught fire. We also know. And it won't be too long. He'll go tiptoe over in the ECW, get over with the, uh, the quote unquote head gimmick, bring back that and the job squad and carve out a little niche for himself. But at this point, as part of the new rockers, he's probably doing whatever he can to just hang around. Right. 
yeah, and, and it was really time for Al to kind of go out. And the best thing for him at that time was for him to go to ECW and be able to try that out. And worked out pretty well for him. I would say so. Um, on Livewire, they're going to make a mention of the WWF reviving the idea of doing a call-in radio show. Uh, I don't think this ever had much traction. I know eventually you guys would start doing some, uh, some stuff here on the internet, like internet radio, but once upon a time, a syndicated WWF radio show was a pretty good idea. I think Jim Ross back in the day when he first jumped over, he sort of flip-flopped his format. Do you remember there being a big push or thinking, man, maybe radio would help us get the word out a little more. Well, radio was, was definitely an, an opportunity that, that presented itself, but it was, I don't know, man, I, I'm not a talk radio guy. So, I, <laughs> I never thought any of these damn talk shows, people just talk about shit would ever get over. You know what I'm saying? And yet here we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, hence my hesitation way back when. Yeah. Oh, nobody wants to hear me talk. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to me talk, man. Please. I can't stand to listen to myself. Well, we like listening to you. And so does Jim Ross. He's in the news here. Uh, it's written Jim Ross was still making subtle references this weekend to feuding with Vince McMahon, but it's been heavily downplayed at one point. Ross talked about the crowd in Springfield being at a capacity crowd saying this wasn't a big theme park sideshow with a crowd herded in like cattle, like WCW worldwide or in a bingo hall. And of course, Meltzer says that line would come across a lot better. If it really was a capacity crowd, we didn't get too much of heel Jim Ross, but even though Jim Ross on air is a, a stone cold baby face behind the scenes in real life, Jim Ross can be a pretty hilarious heel. Uh, do you, do you think there could have been a sustained run as Jim Ross as a, as a heel commentator? Uh, if if Jim embraced me and hated, yeah. You don't think Jim that was like his jam? Yeah. So there was never that, in my opinion. Um, th- there was never that, oof, I really want to be hated. I'm going to do everything that I have to do for people to despise me. It was, well, I'm going to play this part of saying who I am. I'm a good goddamn guy. Um, that That he played to that. So, you know, for that in and of itself, it it became people aren't going to boo him because he's giving you reasons. He's not going all in on, on a heel persona. Not like me. I like being hated. Oh yeah. You're, you are a heel. I embrace it. You told me that the first time we hung out, it was very apparent that you were a heel in real life. Well, well, hang on now. Let's be very clear on that. You, you looked at me in your house and you said, Hey, ask so-and-so this question. And I just boom, turned it on and completely turned heel on him. Then you looked at me and said, Oh my God, you are really a heel. Aren't you? That's tremendous. I said, I said, Oh yeah, it's not a work. Yeah. Well, we had to learn that day. Uh, so on raw November 25th, they did a live interview with Shawn Michaels and Jose Lothario. And they're claiming here that Jose's heart was damaged when he was attacked by Sid with the uh, camera at uh, survivor series. And they also acknowledged that Shawn Michaels was booed at Madison square garden. And they tried to do what they did last year with Kevin Nash after he lost the title by giving him an attitude. This of course is from Dave Meltzer's recap, but 
it's true. You start to see a, a, a sharper, harder edge on Shawn Michaels. Uh, he, he no longer seems like the, the sympathetic white meat baby face. He is a little more aggressive, a little more sarcastic, a little more edgy. I'm sure that's all by design, but that too is probably a little bit more like the real life, Michael Hickenbottom, right? Yeah, it definitely was. And, and it was by design because you listen to that garden audience. And a lot of times that can be your barometer, uh, listening to the New York fans there are a lot of times ahead of the curve as far as who people are going to like and who they don't like. They're jaded as hell, um, which also makes them kind of nice, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, yeah, man, you couldn't deny it. So go with it. Just go ahead and, and, and go with it and embrace it. And Sean never had any problem being a heel and turning it on when he needed to. I think it was a lot more um, difficult in those days for people to buy Sean as a baby face. Uh, here's another one that we want to discuss. Uh, Flash Funk makes the news here. Uh, wait, Dave He's would super say. Funky. He looked awesome both in the ring as a wrestler and his entrance gimmick with the women in his superstars debut over the weekend. Chat me up. What did you like, uh, about the, the presentation? Well, for me, more than anything, I thought that it was fun. And I thought that it was, uh, when Scorpio went out there, man, he, he was having fun. He was being flash funk and, and he embraced it. And it was, um, I think that after a while, I don't know that he, he continued to embrace it, but in the beginning, man, he was having so much fun and that comes across when you, when you're having fun and the audience can actually feel that with you, then, you know, no matter what you do, they're going to buy. Uh, let's talk about Wade Keller. He would report bodybuilder Akam Albrecht goes on his first tour starting November 29th against his trainer body Donna zip. How, uh, how excited was Tom Pritchard to, uh, fly around for Brockus? Well, actually it was Dr. X or Mr. X. Yeah. I think it was Dr. X. Um, but, uh, you know, look for him, him being Occam, I think that the best opportunity, you know, for those guys back in that day was to be able to work to Tom all the time to give them confidence in front of an audience was for them to be able to go out and work with the guy that they've been working with every day. And there was a comfort there. So yeah, we put Tom on, on the road with him, we put Tom on the road with Kurt angle and, um, God, I think we might've even put Tom out on the road with rock for a while. He's, uh, he's getting plenty of opportunities here. Uh, you guys had a, a big press release that hit all the trades like broadcasting and cable, multi-channel news, all that jazz talking about the idea of shotgun Saturday night. And one of the things that's written here, one of the ways in which WWF officials hope to differentiate the show from the growing lineup of wrestling shows is through the possible addition of female combatants. Current plans call for the show to debut from the China club on January 4th. China club feels like a Paul Heyman suggestion all day long, but the possi- Bruce Richard suggestion, but why'd you need Paul then? If you're so goddamn cool, why was he around? No, I just wanted the China club because I love the China club and I love Lenny Haley. Who's not with us anymore. Who was the manager of the China club? Um, 
and the chocolate club, you know, for us was a place where the boys used to hang out a lot. And, uh, for me, it, it just held a special place. You ever, uh, have any success there? I had a good time at the chocolate club, man. That's good to hear. Glad to hear that. Yeah. I, I like when you get put over when people put you over. Yeah. Uh, speaking I, I, of getting, I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, the possible addition of female combatants is the person putting together the press releases, just trying to make anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, fuck, I got to put something in here. We'll just type that. Uh, yeah. Well, they're, they're combative. Therefore they're combatants in their females. Uh, well, hell yeah. I don't know where the hell that came from. I mean, serious business that roster in 1996, I mean, you had Terry Runnels, not a wrestler. You had Sonny, not a wrestler. You had Sable, not a wrestler. Not a wrestler. I don't think there's another lady in the lot. I mean, but they're combatant. They're combative. <laughs> Therefore, combatants. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Um. Makes sense to me. <laughs> there's a, there's another <laughs> note in here. I, I love you for that. <laughs> you just. Yeah, I'm fucking, I'm shilling. I'm going with it. Uh, Wade Keller wrote in the torch. The WWF is holding a staff meeting this Wednesday, December 4th to formally go over the plans for shotgun Saturday night, the planned weekly live broadcast from nightclubs in New York. Uh, and, uh, here's my favorite part. Wrestlers have not been formally told about the program yet. Was Vince just ready for an idea? I mean, it doesn't feel like this is fully thought out before you guys are just hitting the road with it. No, it, it really wasn't. It was one of those where, Hey, what if we did this? Okay, great. Let's go do it. Let's fucking get it done. Bam. Or we're debuting, clear some markets and let's go. And then it was like, okay, well, we've got San Francisco booked and you want to do some, yeah. I mean, shit like that, that, um, but a lot of times and you're guilty of this as well, you know, you'll just do it Yes. and figure it out later. Yes. I do that all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what we did. It was okay. We, we can talk about it. We can bullshit about it and, and, and all this stuff, but if we don't just do it, it ain't going to get done. So let's just go do it and we'll figure it out as we go. I don't think it's necessarily guilty. I just think, and I, I'm not there. I don't know, but it feels like over time, WWE has, has become a, a bigger deal, publicly traded, more corporate, et cetera, et cetera. This feels like entrepreneurial vents. Just well, goddamn, oh, why not? Yeah, it was, man. It was, it was, uh, Hey, let's do this. And, and I called Paul and I said, Hey man, cause Paul, man, Paul's was a promoter and Paul knew everybody in New York and, you know, knew all the guys that ran those clubs. So I said, Hey, here's what we want to do. Uh, got any ideas where we should go? I said, I could introduce you to pretty much everybody. So I was like, okay, let's go. There's something that's right. One night and did it. Something that's written here by Michael Katz for multi-channel news. He's talking about just the pay-per-view industry as a whole and how it's broken down revenue wise. Here's a quote. The top 10 pay-per-view events in 1996 ranked by revenue and buy rates are all boxing and wrestling events. In 96 boxing accounted for 56.7% of gross revenue generated by pay-per-view events. Wrestling did 35.2%. 
other combat sports, AKA mixed martial arts got 6.4% and other sports got 0.5% concerts and music total, just 1.2%. And they're basically saying for 1997, that's going to continue because of the emergence of Oscar de la Hoya, the presence of Mike Tyson, and of course, monthly WCW and WWF events. But the idea that literally 35.2% of every pay-per-view dollar in 1996 had wrestling attached to it tells you where wrestling is. It's on the rise, dude. It was, and, and it was, you know, uh, that number in boxing, not even close to that anymore, but it, it's, you did, you had Tyson, you had Oscar, you had everybody on the, uh, on the rise and it was, it was flourishing. Everybody want, everybody wanted to see you didn't, you minded but at the same time, you knew what you're paying for when you plop down 50 bucks, which was a lot of money for a pay-per-view to see Mike Tyson, knock somebody out in 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, listen, that, that was the joke back then for sure that, um, you know, you paid a whole bunch of money and if you blinked, like if you went to make a sandwich, you went to the bathroom and you came back, it was or, over. Yeah. If you go out and check, if you go out and check your barbecue, uh, we had the, the pay-per-view party at my house and Jr. and I are out on the grill and we're barbecuing, doing shit and everything. And we literally walked outside to get shit off of the grill and came back in. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, what happened? Well, it, I, they were doing introductions when we went out. I mean, what the fuck happened? And Yeah. It was all like all that good shit. Well, goddamn, Brucey. And then we'd, you know, you didn't have DVRs then, so it was like, okay, well, I got to roll the tape back and and watch it. But you can't do you. You got to wait till the show's over now. And you watch the replay fourteen times, so they got to make up some time. And I was like, well, I guess we don't have to roll anything. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it's just kind of there. Yeah. Let's talk about Shawn Michaels getting that harder edge. We were joking about Wade Keller had a little section in the pro wrestling torch called on the road, December 1st in Poughkeepsie at the mid Hudson civic center. We would see Shawn Michaels beat gold dust. And after the match, Shawn brought two kids into the ring to dance, but then a whole bunch of kids, uh, got in the ring and there's some adults chanting Sid and Shawn got on the house mic and said, for all you fans who want Sid. If I have to carry that stiff through one more match, I'm going to knock his teeth out for real. Sid can't work his way out of a paper bag. And there's a couple of fans in particular who were way over the top for Sid. He gets on the mic and says, if you people can't drown out these two Nimrods, then I might as well go home. So he's getting a little bit of the harder edge. And I like showing with that swagger and attitude. We've talked about it again on the show a lot as we've discussed 96 and 97, but I think you could take Sean from late 1996, certainly January of 97 through his injury and, and, and WrestleMania 14. And while he may have been a nightmare and a terror to deal with behind the scenes with him having some substance issues and some injury issues. And of course the big feud with Bret Hart that spilled over to a hair pulling fight in a bathroom. Still that dude turned the volume up as far as an in-ring performer, but that, that little edge, that swagger. It just came through the screen, man. He presented himself like such a superstar. 
he was born to be a heel, not that white meat baby face. We had seen earlier in 96, at least to me. I think to everybody, that's why, you know, that's why you naturally there and Sean was comfortable being a heel (laughs) and and like that. It sometimes went a little too far. Um, I was never a big fan of the inside stuff, but you know, it was what it was. Some people were, uh, Meltzer would also write about Bret Hart's raw rating when he finally returns to Monday night raw to have a match against his old brother, Owen, uh, Wade would write it did not provide the boost to the ratings that the WWF was hoping to close the gap between raw and nitro. The first hour drew a 2.1. Meanwhile, the first hour of nitro did a 2.7. Even during the 15 minutes when Brett was wrestling Owen, Nitro beat raw 2.5 to 2.1. If you're wondering, Nitro had Lex Luger and Arn Anderson. Now you and I both think a lot of Lex and Arn and, and they're friends of the show and what have you, but I think I'd probably rather watch Brett and Owen wrestle, but fans did not that night. Uh, the gap even widened when we saw Eric Bischoff come out for an interview. Nitro was doing a 3.0. And then we had the executioner versus Freddie Joe Floyd. Unfortunately, neither one of those guys are still with us, but great quote unquote hands raw fell to a one nine. Can't believe Eric was ratings. Even back then, were you surprised when Brett and Owen, I mean, that quarter hour losing just sticks out like a sore thumb. Like, damn, this is the guy who hasn't been here and was the top guy. And he's back against everybody who's paid any attention to wrestling. Those Brett and Owen are going to steal the show. And it still loses to a Lex Luger match. So. Yeah. But no, it didn't. And it just is kind of like, God damn, man. They, you know, and, and I think that at that time was a cry from the audience. We want new. Uh, there is, uh, something else to discuss in the torch here. Meltzer, not Meltzer. Wade would write the WWF filmed an angle in Europe between Bret Hart and Sid. The angle aired on raw, but in the preceding days, there are sketchy reports on the 900 line and live wire on Saturday morning regarding the angle were simply meant to imply there may have been a real life Sid Arn like fight that took place in a hotel room three years ago. Of course, you may recall there was a whole incident with scissors way back in 93 with Sid and Arn, but still they're trying to hint that on the hotlines. And, uh, Wade would say with Sid returning to Europe on the WWF's two day UK tour this past weekend, the WWF decided to suggest Sid may have gotten into similar trouble on his Friday, November 29th, WWF 900 line report. Jim Ross said, apparently in London late Wednesday night or early Thursday morning, we're not sure of all the details. There was a physical altercation in London between psycho Sid and Brett, the Hitman Hart. This was not an in-ring incident. Apparently. I do not have all the details other there, other than there was some physicality involved. I'm not sure if it happened in a locker room or at the hotel. I know that sounds very sketchy, but we're hearing conflicting reports until we can get the story, right? I hate to go further with the situation. His next report was Tuesday, December 3rd, and he didn't add much clarification. He just said they got into an altercation where they were separated by WWF officials and police officers. As we understand it on Wednesday night in their hotel in London. In hindsight, is that in the best taste or is, or is everything oh, off God limits damn. for wrestling? No, see, that's somebody stretching, trying to make something out of 
an angle, a wrestling angle. Nobody said anybody stabbed anybody with scissors. Nobody said any of that shit happened. That's somebody going, oh, this must be what they're trying to do. No, it was a story. It was a way to create interest in shit. That's all it was. But, but, but Sid had the fight overseas. He didn't have the fight in Poughkeepsie. In Germany. or Who cares? Okay. But that, again, that's somebody, oh, this must be what they were trying to do. That's not what we were trying to do. That is complete summation of taking it. Well, this is what they meant to do. No, that's not what we fucking meant to do. It's like when they reported, when we did the deal with Undertaker and the guys attacking him with Muhammad Hassan. And, oh, my God, they're mocking the London bombings. Hey, dumbasses, we shot it before there were any London bombings. And we took it off the show after that happened on that Thursday. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that irritates the living shit out of me. Because there's just absolutely zero fact to any of it. Well, everybody was... Reporting it, whether it was Dave Shear and the wrestling lariat or Wade. Again, rumor mongers. Okay. People that don't know fuck all. Let's talk about, uh, another report from the torch. Jeff Katz, the 17 year old who hosted weekly news update on the WCW 900 line during mean jeans absence reported the USA network gave the WWF an ultimatum, an ultimatum, an ultimatum, ultimatum. It's late here, Bruce, uh, an ultimatum to increase ratings it's late here too. Yeah. It's uh, eight 48 there. I know. Right. It's past my bedtime or raw would be moved to midnight <laughs> on Monday nights. The WWF had added, uh, that to their list of slander perpetrated by WCW and said that USA never told them they were considering moving raw to midnight. So what do you think about this? When the WCW hotline plant some rumor and innuendo about your company. Is that fair game? Or is that something that you guys are going to get up? And Again, it's just, it was just lies and, and it's lies and, and shit that, you know, people would make up again. They're trying to sell their hotline shit and making up lies. No different than Wade Keller and whoever else other names that you mentioned, you know, are making up summations of things based on what they think, not actual fact. Uh, Dave would also report that Harlem heat is said to be negotiating with the WWF. Do you remember in 1996, anybody ever having a discussion with Booker's TV? No, I, I never now, even heard that <clears throat> now, but when, uh, Sid came up, Sid was a huge fan of Harlem heat. And, uh, Sid would constantly, uh, be plugging Harlem heat, but I don't think that we, at least to my knowledge, I don't know that we ever had any negotiations with Harlem heat at any time. I want to mention there's some angles where we would see Sid defending the title against Steve Austin and Austin knocking him out with the title, but then Davy boy doing a run in attacking Austin Sid would then get mad at Smith because the ref DQ'd him. But ultimately Austin's pissed because he felt like, Hey, you cost me the title. So some interesting storytelling here. And that sets up triangle matches that are promoted for late January at the big arena shows between Sid, Brett, and Sean for the title. What do you think of that? A triangle match. That wasn't something that was really common here in 1996. No, it wasn't. It was something, you know, that, that we had tried, 
uh, before with, I think, Razor and Diesel and Sean and, and some different things. And it, it was, uh, that became the triple threat. Uh, it would continue here. The news from the torch. Ahmed Johnson will be programmed with gold dust to give him wins on his return. Gold dust is pretty much being phased down. And I think that's probably a fair statement. Gold dust being phased down. I mean, it did feel like the character was probably at an all time high in, in 95 and then early 96. But after WrestleMania, it does feel like it starts to slide a little bit for him in 96. Would that be a fair statement? <laughs> Yeah, I think it would have been a good idea to give him a rest and put him on the shelf for a little while. Um, it was, you know, very obviously polarizing and, and controversial character. And sometimes you need a new paint of coat. And it just, you know, might have benefited him at that time. Yeah, put him on the shelf for a little while and then bring him back when the time is right. Uh, we would see a report here. We don't have results yet, but the Dubai tours were four shows in the same 18,000 seat arena from November 29th to December 2nd. The first night was all tag matches. Since the guys were flying in from England, the second night was said to be a series of eight man elimination matches, which is the Dubai survivor series. And the third night, a Royal rumble and the fourth night, the Dubai King of the ring tournament. I assume these were all quote unquote paid shows or sold shows. Yeah, that was just one big, you know, four day deal, uh, 100% all sold in advance. Let's talk about your man, uh, Brockus. He debuts on the tour, which starts on November 30th in Lowell mass. The first two nights he uses the name Argo. The third night in Utica, he was called Baracus. His foe all three nights was his trainer, Tom Pritchard, who was wrestling here as Dr. X. And of course, everyone said he carried the match. Reports were that he was huge. The match was limited to him doing a few power moves that Dr. Tom sold well for, but he had no crowd interaction and appeared to have some athletic ability. Uh, at the Lowell show, they announced a six ten superstars taping in the same building. So I love hearing about these old superstars tapings because once upon a time, it was a big part of the program. And even here in 96, there was a lot of new content on there, but Dr. X, you nailed it earlier. Uh, what do you remember about flirting with the name Argo? Were you just trying it? Who was for it? Who was against it? How did we First land on I never even heard that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I have no idea. Uh, you know, we were, we were going to call him Occam and then, you know, tried other things and ended up with Brockus. Uh, Argo, wasn't that a movie? <laughs> yeah. It's a whole, it's based on a real story too. Bruce, just so you know, love you for that. Uh, well, so was goddamn Brockus. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying Argo. <laughs> Never mind. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, with 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 the uh, Ben Affleck. Affleck. Ben Affleck. Ben. There you go. Jim Ross reported on the WWF hotline that a woman filed assault charges against Shawn Michaels, alleging he struck her in the face as he was heading towards the locker room after his match in Springfield, Mass. A court date is a court date is scheduled for later this month. It was a TV taping, so the match and the ring exit is taped. Ross said on the hotline, he saw the tape and didn't see anything that looked like someone getting struck in the face and quote, it looks like somebody is looking for an easy payday. So this was essentially a nuisance lawsuit. Michael's also made a guest appearance on a radio show in Rochester, New York. It's actually the number one AM station on December 6th. And he's there to promote the April 20th in your house. 
He was on the program for two hours and he talked about wrestling, his life, his coworkers. And then he answered fan questions. He stayed with the storylines for the most part, but he did refer to Hulk Hogan as a worthless human being and a total piece of shit, which got edited off the show with that old seven second delay. And, uh, according to the report here from Wade, he really loosened up when a porn star slash stripper showed up topless wearing a leather thong. He stayed around and chatted with employees at the radio station and was said to be a great interview guest. You don't hear that a lot. You often hear just the nightmares of dealing with Sean, but man, here's Sean being a great media partner too. How about that? Every once in a while, you know, again, man, uh, positivity doesn't sell. Right. Negative rumor and innuendo sells. Do you remember this uh, nuisance lawsuit where some lady was alleging that Sean struck her in the face? Yeah. Yeah. Briefly it went away. I want to mention, uh, in Scranton on December 6th, Sean is wrestling Goldust. He gets a ton of booze in his post-match routine. A lot of the male fans start throwing stuff at him. So he just stops dancing and storms off. So that hardened edge, man, of Sean Michaels, here it comes. Wade would also say that Paul Heyman addressed several key issues regarding ECW's future as ECW approached a confirmation for a March 30th date on pay-per-view. Regarding the working relationship with the WWF, he says he sees it as two people who are under the gun from Ted Turner, who realized there's a very powerful media conglomerate backing a rival organization that could drive them out of business. Heyman says there's nothing more to the relationship than meets the eye. And he does not have the desire to work for the WWF or have ECW officially work with the WWF on a larger level. Is that pretty much the stone cold truth or, or was he always angling for a little more. I think he was always angling for money. Yeah. I think he was looking, I mean, you know, he was, he was looking for some way to pay the bills. Well, nothing wrong with that. I suppose. No, I mean, you know, there's, there's really not. And, and again, uh, in our business and, and what we do just by definition, a lot of times it is you're telling stories and that didn't, doesn't fit Paul's narrative for ECW to be working with the big boys. Um, it's also noted here. The WWF is reviving the angle thus far, only on their 900 line of a woman receiving mystery gifts. But now Marlena is the recipient of these anonymous gifts. Uh, it will continue here. Perhaps that angle will be played up on shotgun since that may provide gold dust with a forum for the sexually suggestive antics he used in the past that McMahon or the USA network maybe felt were inappropriate for the USA network. Do you remember that being, you know, for lack of a better word, something that you thought you could do in a big way, like, Hey man, shotgun Saturday night, different animal. We could, uh, we could maybe have gold dust push the, push the, uh, the envelope again. Not really. I, I look with shotgun Saturday night. We definitely experimented with pushing the envelope big time. Um, it, you know, it obviously didn't pay off, but it was, um, an opportunity and a time period where it's like, okay, you, you can push the envelope a little bit here. Um, but syndication, you're, you're dealing with individual stations. So it's, it's not, it, it's just a different animal. It's a different animal than, you know, late night cable and cable just in general as it is. But, um, hell yeah, we are always looking to push the envelope. Somehow walk the line as much as you can. Dave Meltzer, uh, 
would write that the shows we talked about earlier over in Dubai were successful financially for Titan, but the crowds were poor all four nights. And, uh, the Hollywood reporter has an ad that the WWF is looking for a director of media relations. And, uh, there's also some speculation that NBC might be looking to purchase the USA network. And there's some fear that maybe NBC might dump a bunch of USA's programming. Was that ever something that was on you guys radar that, Hey, what if USA was sold? Every time that those rumors would come up, you know, you're, you're always wondering what, what level of truth. And there was always, you know, some level of interest in people, you know, talking about, but more than, you know, more times than not, it was, it was pretty much just rumor and innuendo and people talking about, Oh my God, so-and-so is going to sell. Um, and sometimes, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire and other times it's just, you know, people saying shit, you know, the, the entertainment industry has its, its share of, you know, gossip mongers and, and people that just, you know, gossip and deal in rumor and innuendo, no different than, than we do. I want to mention, um, the show that we're covering here in your house. It's time happened on December 15th. And this is from Bret Hart's book. He wrote in West Palm beach, the night of December 14th, 1996, I slid under the sheets hurting so badly. I had no choice, but to wash down a couple of pain pills, plug in my heating pad and smear icy hot over my knees and back. I was supposed to wrestle Sid in our title bout the next day at in your house, wrestling with Jim in the heart foundation in the early days. I used to feel like the zippy Porsche to Jim's armored tank. Now I felt like an old race car with my dings hidden before every match under a coat of fresh paint. That's a nice illustration. Brett knew how to, uh, coin a phrase here. Were you starting to think that maybe Brett had lost a step or he was just getting older or did you still think, man, he's our big star. You know, uh, at that time, um, I've always been a huge fan of Brett and, and Brett's work. Um, but I think every time that Brett would take a longer time away, it was harder for him to come back. And that's, I think that's true with anybody in, in any, in any field, uh, no matter what it is, uh, if you take time away and, you know, you're gone for a while. It, it takes, it takes a while to get back into the swing of things. If you're an athlete and you come back, it's, you're not what you were when you left. You're just not, nobody's going to beat father time. Right. He's undefeated. Mm-hmm. Dave Meltzer would write the world wrestling federation finished its 1996 pay-per-view schedule with a solid, but unspectacular event on December 15th from West Palm beach called it's time. The booking for the show was clearly thought out as the matches that on paper didn't look good were given enough outside distractions to at least attempt to overcome the obstacles. The show was largely well-received, although it should be noted that there was a far lighter response for this show that we received. And that doesn't bode well for the buy rate, even with Bret Hart challenging for the title in a scenario in which a solid percentage of the public should have figured as a title change. Nobody figured between the time of year and the already intense hype for Royal rumble as the next big show, that this was going to be anything, but a throwaway show. That's sort of a trap that you fall into when you've got these big major events, right? Like survivor series and MSG, 
and now the Royal rumble in a freaking dome. This is sort of the more skippable pay-per-view, but still profitable, right? Yeah. And I, you know, again, I, I think that with the right attraction that, you know, it all comes down to, well, shit, man, guess what? Not as many people want to watch that one. Um, Rocky Mavia and Salvatore sincere are going to do the, uh, the free for all match. We don't, we've spent a lot of time talking about rock, of course, but Sal sincere, we don't spend a lot of time talking about him. Any good Sal stories you can share with us? Uh, Vince Russo did the vignettes for Sal sincere wrote them and shot them. That was like his first, uh, his first foray into, uh, into television with us. Like, all right, you know, here, write these vignettes and, uh, go and shoot them. Sal sincere was his, his first one. Best of my recollection. Uh, here's a, it was, what the hell was his name? Tom Brandy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Tom was one of those guys that, uh, had a great look and, and a look that you would think, man, guy, you know, I can see him being a big star and he just, just never, never made it past that, past that level. He just, I don't know if it was because he was an extra for all those years that people just saw him that way. Um, but you know, nice guy. And I thought he's a decent worker. Uh, Meltzer would continue Sid scoring the clean pin using his power bomb on Bret Hart in the main event was logical, long-term booking, but somewhat gutsy considering the amount of money that the company has invested in Bret Hart and Sid's track record. It's pretty clear that Shawn Michaels should get the title back at Royal rumble. And the Hart is destined for the strap after that, presumably at WrestleMania. This leaves Sid as the obvious challenger for Hart, since he holds a win both over Hart and Michaels. And if anything, builds up more heat for triangle matches for the title, which I suppose would have Michaels going over in. And that would take place on the major shows after the rumble. This leaves Michaels after dropping the strap, also in a strong position since theoretically he'll have beaten both Hart and Michaels in those triangle matches leading to the title loss. I'm figuring at some point in there, Austin will get a win over the aforementioned three. So he'll also be positioned in that category for a title feud with Hart later in 97. Of course, we know none of that's going to happen. Sean's going to lose his, uh, smile in February and well, plans change. Um, Meltzer will continue saying Hart wasn't able to carry Sid anywhere close to the match. Michaels was, which is something for their own internal bragging rights. The show had satellite transmission problems at various points, which were annoying, but not enough to ruin the show. Both viewers choice and request offered immediate free replay showings to everyone who had ordered. Of course, the replay had the exact same interruptions, but the show drew a legitimate sellout 5,708 fans. There's 4,581 of them paying a gate of $69,000 at the West Palm beach Memorial auditorium. what do you think of that building, Bruce? We don't talk about the West Palm beach building much. Yeah. There's a reason it's the shits ain't much to talk about. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was an old building. I like, you know, uh, that was really nice when they got a new building to, to work in. Yeah. Wasn't much to write home about. Sean Michaels cut a pretty spirited promo here saying he defended the WWF title for eight months while Brett sat and passed judgment from his home in Calgary. 
but that he's a professional and he's going to sit at ringside and not interfere. Quote, I'm an emotional wreck and be careful or I might wreck on you, Hitman. Yeah, Hitman. Uh, Rocky Mavi, as we said, gets a win over South and Seer by DQ. Six minutes and one second. The interference came from Jim Cornette. Cornette had been managing Sincere as uh, revenge against Mavia, who had turned down his managerial advances for a few weeks prior on the Superstar show. Motherfucker. Yeah. Cornette was um, here to see Mavia use the shoulder breaker finish, and that's when he hit the ring. He being Cornette. Mavia gets up, and of course, immediately Cornette faints dead in his tracks. The referee sees him, calls for the DQ. Man, can you imagine if when Rock really sort of got his feet underneath him, him and Cornette on a microphone back and forth. If he was managing some sort of monster heel that was going to challenge rock, that would have been tremendous. Would it not? In each of their heydays. Yes. Yeah. Uh, before they do the actual pay-per-view, they did another brief angle. Jim Ross is supposed to be interviewing Bret Hart, but in the background, you see Hunter Hearst Helmsley putting the moves on Marlena and Meltzer would say, whose look they've changed to be more feminine and attractive from her hard cigar smoking look. And, uh, in a surprise, we have a, a new wrestling announcer here from AAA, who's going to be taking over the Spanish language broadcast name, Arturo Rivera. <laughs> and, and they get a big plug here on the show. Like when you start the show, they're sure to point them out. And of course we know AAA is going to have a big part in the Royal rumble, but do you remember in this era, you know, not just, are we looking for more Hispanic talent? We're trying to sell more pay-per-views and get more attention in that Mexican market as well. Right? Yeah. We were trying to buy AAA. There you go. Uh, the first I mean, match that, that was, that was the thing. Oh, you must have Arturo Rivera. Um, oh, that's the way they pitched it. You got to have this. Guy. Oh God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, yeah. Well, you know what? One day we ought to do a, a whole show a, about that. A whole triple triple a experience at that point, but by the way, triple a was what? Like four years old. I mean, they started in the early nineties, right? Yeah. This was after their heyday. I mean, you know, look when they, when they, when they were in their heyday with, you know, Conan and Eddie and, uh, art and all that shit, you know, they, they were started La park, all those guys, those original, uh, triple a crew that they had, um, their shit was insane. But once you get into it, once you get into their business and, and what have you, and working with them was an absolute nightmare. Let's start the show. We got flash funk pinning leaf Cassidy in 10 minutes and 34 seconds. Uh, I enjoyed watching this just because I like both of these guys, but it is not exactly the type of type of match I was expecting. I do think Jim Ross was, was in a groove here though. He was calling this like an athletic event, this entire show. When I watched it back, when he's talking about the strategy for the guys, uh, it, it was, it was cool. It was almost like you would see before an NFL game, you would have the talking heads at a desk and they're all going to go around and give their picks. Well, he's picking the hitman, and here's how, and here's why. And it was just good stuff. Uh, anyway, flash funk and, uh, leaf Cassidy here, get 10 minutes and 34 seconds. Uh, it's written here. The, these two did a lot of high risk spots as far as working cohesively together, but it was a disappointment. Not only were there several missed spots, funk was moving slow and the two weren't smooth. 
and had the look of two indie wrestlers who do a lot of Japanese and Mexican spots. Although they did an innovative spot where Cassidy dropped funk on his face as he's going over for the spinning head scissors. Um, after Cassidy, who carried most of the match, missed a moonsault on the middle rope, funk did a handspring into a kick and a running dive over the top rope to the floor. Funk did several big moves leading to near falls before getting the pin with the Scorpio splash, which Jim Ross called a shooting star press. And by the way, it's worth mentioning the real life, Charles Skaggs, AKA flash funk is not a little man. And sometimes if he wasn't in just the perfect position, buddy, that's a whole lot of weight coming down on your fucking head. And, uh, I don't yes, know, Yes, it is. I don't know that this was the safest, uh, looking finish here. I was a little worried for our pal Al snow after, um, why do you think flash Funk? I mean, we know flash funk is a character that Vince McMahon loved, uh, just based on the presentation. That's just him all day, but damn, he was a fun wrestler to watch too. And just never really had the, the success. W- what kept flash funk from being an intercontinental champion or something of that sort? I just don't think that the audience gravitated to him. There wasn't, there wasn't, you know, that connection. And I think that especially in this match, um, I didn't think they had any chemistry. They, they didn't jive. And you would have thought, um, as we did, that the, the styles would, man, they would, they would compliment one another. I, for me, you know, watching back, it's like, eh. It's two spotty guys trying to get their spots in without any, uh, logic or just, it was just wasn't good. And they clashed and it felt clashy and clunky, but sometimes clunky in a good way can be all right. This wasn't clunky in a good way. This was just like, boy, there's just trying and nothing's working. Let's mention that, uh, the next match is Owen and Davey against razor and diesel. Of course, Owen and Davey are going to retain the tag titles in 10 minutes and 45 seconds. And here's the report from Meltzer. And it's going to make you laugh during the match. Ross said that none of the four wrestlers in the ring were between the ages of 45 and 50, nor are they bald or have any artificial body parts. <laughs> now he's saying all of this because the Starcade main event, which is the WCW pay-per-view this same month. Is Roddy Piper with an artificial hip taking on the balding Hulk Hogan? And Meltzer will continue. There are times to say lines like that, but I'm not sure this was the time. Rick Bogner isn't exactly Ric Flair or Roddy Piper when it comes to work rate or charisma. Eventually, we see Piroth Jr. and Cybernetico come out, or Cybernetico ripping off his uh, shirt. Ross billed the two as high flyers and big risk takers. And Meltzer says, that's about the funniest line of the year. And boy, are they in for a surprise? Then they left and Steve Austin came out. Smith is going to jump Austin. All the officials try to break it up and haul Austin out. Meltzer would say Ramon looked pretty bad, but diesel looked at least passable. Of course, we know that's going to go on to be Kane. So why not? Ultimately, Austin's going to hit the ring clip Smith. It looks like, um, they're trying to show that Owen saw him coming. And attempted to do nothing to stop him. So maybe they're going to turn this into a big storyline. And, uh, Meltzer says the finish was real good and the match was okay. He gave it two and a quarter stars. It is a little silly on pay-per-view though. I mean, I love Owen and Davey, but against fake razor and fake diesel. Don't say they're not fake. They're not fake. They're razor and diesel. Well, I'm I paying, mean, they would have gone loved, downhill. They'd slipped a little bit. I would have loved to have given you a fake 20 to see the fake razor and fake diesel. And we call it even. 
I'll take that. Next up, we got Ahmed Johnson doing an interview. If you can call it that. He's going <laughs> <He's gonna> to say <laughs> that this oh, injury boy. that Farouk has put on him cost me my girlfriend, cost me my job, cost me my house. So he lost, I don't know how he lost his car and his house, but he and his job, but here he is. And meanwhile, well, he it in a really big parking lot <laughs> and, and he came out, couldn't find it. It was one of those things he couldn't find. He didn't have that find my car on his app. I didn't think they had apps back then. I mean, that's how hard times I'm That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Ahmed didn't even have apps here in 96. So we get NOD on the balcony yelling back and unbelievably Farouk is going to call Ahmed Johnson an uncle Tom, which boy, that did not age well. And I understand the concept is they're trying to mimic the whole Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier feud, but that was like 25 years ago. Obviously these days, nothing like that would ever happen. And then they announced that Ahmed is going to take on Farouk and undertaker is going to take on Vader on the Royal rumble undercard. And this is where some of the satellite stuff started to screw up, but they're announcing some folks who are going to be in the rumble, like cybernetico, Austin, Rocky, mankind, Jake Roberts, this Ahmed Johnson, Farouk thing. I know you guys had high hopes, but dude, that was just snake bit from the start. Was it not? We did actually. And I think that, um, <laughs> I also think that when you look at it, man, it was, it was quickly easy to see this ain't going to work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that, that's kind of where we were and, and you hope for the best, but sometimes you just don't get it. So we got Mark Marrow up next beating Hunter Hurst <laughs> by count out. Uh, so Hemsley's going to retain the IC title in 14 minutes and three seconds. And there's a pre-match video for the feud and it's going to sort of help us understand how we got here, but it's been changed from when Helmsley rammed the car into Mr. Perfect's knee, having taken place instead of before the Merrill Helmsley title match, it took place after. So the idea is this is the way we got rid of Mr. Perfect and Hey, if he resigns and comes back cool, but as we know, Mr. Perfect's out of here, he's going to WCW. And something that made me laugh here, this is directly from the observer. Helmsley has new entrance music, which is the same song. That is the theme of the NBC show. Suddenly Susan. And that tickles me. Uh, Ross and McMahon did this bit hey, about, wait, are you sure? Uh, are you sure? Suddenly Susan didn't just take Hunter's theme. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You didn't think of that one. Did you? I love that. It is. I mean, you are the spin doctor and you're masterful at it. I, I bow. I, never, you, so. I, I don't even know what suddenly Susan is. Does it matter though? You just know, no, we did it first. Everybody ripped us off. That's it. Good night. Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. Ross and McMahon. Don't know that. No, I agree with you. Totally. Listen, if I didn't believe your horse shit, we wouldn't be doing this. You know what I'm saying? When you tell me to eat my applesauce and put on my sneakers, I'm going to do it. Well, eat your applesauce, put on your sneakers. Uh, Ross and McMahon did this bit about Helmsley being court-martialed in military school when he was a teenager and McMahon acted shocked at what type of a person what happened would have this happen, which is an inside joke. That was a scene from McMahon's childhood. Anyway, the two had easily the best work match of the show, but it was also the worst finish on the show. After a ref bump, Helmsley grabbed the title belt from Howard Finkel, but Mero beat him to the punch and used a Japanese rolling crotch hold. The referee recovered after a long period and counted two before Helmsley kicked out. Mero used a somersault plancha on Helmsley. Goldust then came out, grabbed the title belt 
went to hit Helmsley with it, but he ducked and he hit Marrow. He then hit Helmsley. So both were knocked out. Marrow had just beat the longest 10 count in history to get in and then win the match. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're at least trying to do something here with Helmsley hitting on Marlena after the match. Marrow still does the shooting star press because that's what fans came to see and gold us attacks Helmsley in the aisle. So we've got a little post-match angle three and a quarter stars, but Goldust as a baby face, considering everything we've done for the last couple of years, kind of tough to really get behind. Does it not? Yeah, it was in the beginning, but I think that, you know, once you, you get to, yes, but at the same time, I think he got there eventually as a baby face. I really do. Coming up next, we've got, uh, really one of the more interesting matches. When I went back to watch this show, this was the match I was most excited to see because it's such a rare thing. Undertaker and Terry Gordy in a WWF ring. It happened. Yeah, no, it didn't. And it's unfortunate that it's not better than it was, but here he is as the executioner. It's an Armageddon rules match which they go over big time with a whole graphic ahead of time, trying to explain what the rules are. But Meltzer would say it's basically the same rules as a seventies NWA, Texas death match. And that falls don't count. The match continues until one man can't answer the bell. They go 11 minutes and 31 seconds. And frankly, when I watched it back, it felt like a half hour. Uh, the two worked about four minutes with a fast pace. It was decent, but you could tell it wouldn't last at this point. Mankind came in to save the show. It turned into a handicap match for several minutes. Undertaker made a comeback and threw mankind through the window of the house set up in the back of the in your house set. And then he threw mankind back out the front door. Taker and executioner then brawled backstage while the officials put mankind in a straight jacket in the ring, which is quite the visual. The brawl wound up with the executioner taking a bump into the pond, which was just outside the building. And by the way, that was at the bottom of a really long concrete ramp. And they wound up back in the ring with the executioner soaked, like literally right out of the pond undertaker immediately gets the uh, tombstone and the win and the executioner wasn't able to answer the uh, 10 count after the fall two and a half stars is what Dave gave it, which I think is probably pretty kind. It is interesting to see, even on the tombstone, the water just shake out of the executioner's boots. (laughs) We both love Terry Gordy. You go back and watch his stuff and man, what a specimen, what a wrestling prodigy, but you can tell this is just, well, less than ideal, but it had to be cool for the undertaker who grew up a wrestling fan and, and paying attention to what the Freebirds were doing and really starting to cut his teeth out in Dallas. He probably liked being in there with Terry Gordy, but it was really about undertaker mankind. Was it not? Yeah, oh, definitely. And, and I think for anybody that, that knew Bam Bam, it, it was kind of sad and it was, it was tough to watch at times because you, you just, you knew what it could have been. And so for that, you know, when you go back and look at it, it it's, it's sad because it wasn't Bam Bam. You know, it's, it's just, you say, oh gosh, we would love to have seen Terry Gordy and, and Undertaker. I would have loved to have seen that. You didn't see that there. That's not what that was. 
that was a shell of Terry Gordy. That was the executioner uh, as a favor. And um, yeah, it sucked. It wasn't good. It, it wasn't good. It was it was all about mankind and, and Taker, but it was also Taker trying to 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 take care of of Terry too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Taker wanted it so bad for Terry. And you know, we all knew we weren't gonna get there. And 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 that just that sucks. You know, it, it just it wasn't it wasn't what it could have been had had the accident not happened with Terry and and what have you. So to me, from a personal standpoint, looking at it and, and knowing both guys, yeah, it, it, it was a sad it was a sad scene for me because I hate to see him bam bam that way. Next up, we've got our main event. But before we get there, I want to mention we're doing a backstage interview in the locker room area and Jr. had been teasing it all night saying I've talked to, uh, Bret Hart a lot. I've never seen him like he is today. I've never seen him like he is right now. And then we go backstage and there's doc Hendricks talking to Bret Hart and Bret Hart is overflowing with frustration. And it's the first time we start to see what is going to become the heel Bret Hart when it really bubbles over and he pushes down Vince McMahon after raw one night and really a, a phenomenal turn. The seeds are at least sprinkled here. So it, it, it shows me that at least, even though it wound up being with Austin, maybe the idea was somebody was going to have to be the bad guy, but we've talked about this entire show, how Sean was starting to have this harder edge and he's going to be out here doing commentary. So even as Brett's doing his interview with doc, you can hear through the arena where they're playing Sean's music and doc tries to throws it back and Brett's pissed off at that. So they keep it on Brett. And then when the, we finally do get Sean on commentary, uh, he's got several days growth of a beard, which is described in the observer as a cross between Brad Pitt and Kevin Nash. And he's firing shoot comments at heart saying he's the most arrogant and obnoxious wrestler in the WWF. He's even referring to Sid as the most expensive piece of luggage in the WWF, because if it wasn't for guys like me carrying him every night, he'd be a big zero. What was the original plan for, you know, if we get to WrestleMania 13 and we've still got Brett and we've got Sean, who's going to wrestle like the heel, who's going to wrestle like the baby face, because it feels like at this point, it could have been either guy. Uh, it, it definitely could have been, but at the same time, um, it, it, there was no intent at that point. You know, the, the stuff that Brett was doing, I think Brett thought was baby face because through Brett's eyes, he saw Sean one way and this is when they started getting a little sideways. Well, not when they started, but <laughs> you know, it was, it turned up the volume do, a little let, bit. Yeah. Let's do these shoot comments and everything. People are going to, uh, think, Oh my God, you know, this is real. And then everybody started taking them personal. They were personal, but it was like, Hey, let's get personal with this because people will think you're not supposed to say that, you know? And, and it was playing to that, uh, that small audience of, of people that read the internet and read the dirt sheets and all that crap. So 
I think Brett kind of, you know, Brett looked at it as, you know, he's, he's their hero. He's their baby face. He's going to shut Shawn Michaels mouth, but Shawn had to give him something to shut. And yeah, it just was Brett. When, when Sean says, yeah, Brett's whiny, Brett was whiny. He, he wasn't that, he wasn't that guy. Cause it was like, hey, he would complain and kind of bitch and shit like that. So, um, it made it hard to really like him. Here's some comments uh, yeah. that Sean had. I do my best to be obnoxious, but even I can't hang with the hitman anymore. He outdoes everybody as far as being pompous and arrogant. As far as I'm concerned, this time I'll turn him into nothing but a bitter, bitter wrestler. And Jim Ross in response says, I know what it is to have to work with someone who's pompous, which is kind of fun. Sean also says, Sid is the WWF's most expensive. Why is he going to talk about me like that? That's bullshit. Well, that's true. I'll tell you something about Jim Ross right now, buddy. I'm listening. You hear about what? Quote, we're all different individuals. Am I the only one in the WWF who's figured that out? We can all be different or do we all have to be vanilla and boring like Brett? God forbid we smile once in a while or have emotion here or there. It's called real life folks. Get to know it. What bothers me is this is Brett Hart's top speed. That's all Brett's got. He ain't the quickest guy in the world. Physically, Brett isn't past his prime, but mentally he's changed. He's not the same. He's gotten bitter. Like so many people do. After a matter of time and quote, last one from Sean, another quote from commentary. The truth has always scared guys in this business. That's the way it goes. Now for the match itself, Meltzer would say Hart carried it to an above average match using his regular arsenal, dominating most of the way, since he was doing the job at the end. After Sid kicked out of the scorpion, Hart was on the floor and Austin came out and clipped him. This brought out Owen Hart and Smith. The ladder with his knee all taped up and limping, and he went after Austin. Sid took advantage. At one point, Hart tried to get a chair, and Michaels let him have his chair, but Sid hit Hart from behind before he could use it. Sid then jumped down, and Michaels was going to let him use the chair as well, but Sid instead shoved Michaels into the guardrail. Michaels got on the apron to go after Sid, but wound up colliding with Hart, who was pinned after a powerbomb. After the match, Hart attacked Michaels and pounded him into the ground. Michael seemed thrilled that a lot of fans were cheering Hart for doing so and lost his cool and started swearing at a fan who was making fun of him. Three stars. How much of, of, of Sean losing his cool at fans is quote unquote working. And how much is just, he's just really emotional. Oh, by this point he was working. Okay. He loved to get people riled up enough that where they thought, Oh, I got him. The match itself here, Brett's working as a heel, even though Sid's the heel. I say that because there's a moment in the match where Brett goes over and undoes the top turnbuckle. Only a bad guy would do that. He's going to try to throw him into that. A smart guy would do that. Well, either way, as you play heel commentator here, Jesse Ventura, they do a spot here where the idea is Sid is going to get pushed into that turnbuckle, but he's going to fall. And ultimately Brett's going to hit it, but they stumble. And they just repeat the exact same spot again, live on pay-per-view. It stuck out like a sore thumb because you almost never saw this happen in a Bret Hart match, but it happened here with Sid. Uh, we both think the world of Bret Hart is an in-ring performer. Once the bell rang, gosh, he didn't have a lot of equals, 
but Shawn Michaels right before this, that survivor series had a much better match. Do you think that was, uh, something Sean took great pride in because it does feel like these guys were at least competitive with their in-ring performances. Yeah, they were. But, but I, again, I think that, uh, there were opponents. Uh, actually I'm, I'm going to take this back. I was going to say there were opponents that, that Brett may have a better match than, than Sean, you know, Sean could work with everybody. And, but at the same time, if you give Bret Hart time, Bret yeah. ain't leaving that ring till he gets them. Yeah. And so Bret had that unique quality that, um, Bret would paint you that picture and, and whether you may not buy it at first, but by God, he would fucking work his ass off until he hooked you at the end and he would own it. Um, and sometimes if he didn't have the time to do that, you didn't get to see it. I think that would frustrate him. Uh, I think that both Sean and Brett, you know, are two of the best I've ever seen ever in the ring. I don't think anybody can argue that. Yeah. Uh, Brett wrote this in his book about the match. Our match turned out to be surprisingly good. Sid had come to respect me because I'd helped him when I could. During our match, Sean sat with Jim Ross at the announcer's table, ranting about his God-given right to live his life as he chose. Apparently, the remark I'd made a month earlier about him posing for Playgirl had been eating away at him the whole time. Sean got involved in the finish by climbing on the ring apron, where we collided, allowing Sid to jackknife powerbomb me to the mat for the win. I furiously jumped out and pulled Sean's shirt over his head like we were in a hockey fight and pretended to beat him senseless. It looked fantastic. Sid came back to the dressing room, thrilled with how it went and Sean seemed nothing but upbeat, but over the next two days of TVs in Florida, he was noticeably distant with me. When I told Vince, I was concerned that I was pissing Sean off. Vince downplayed it. Still, I asked him to clarify things for both being me and Sean. So we could do this thing. Right. And he wouldn't listen. Instead of us sorting things out, Sean went out and did an angry in-ring interview with me as the target of his rage. I was disappointed to see him lose his baby face composure. I was thinking, oh, Sean, don't do this. Stay humble. I'm only working. Let me be the heel. I shook my head in utter dismay, trying to figure out what was happening between us. Buddy, just reading that back. We're headed for a collision course and it's December of 96. Absolutely. But again, they had, they had worked out on their own. Hey, let's go, you know shoot work with this and man, you know, we don't tell anybody and, and we do these personal things and they were both doing what they kind of agreed that they were going to do. And then they both got the, you know, boo-boo face and, and butt hurt over the things the other would say and do. So that, that was, you know, the, the reality of the situation. Uh, real quick, I want to recap what happened, uh, after the pay-per-view went off, uh, we would see Brackus defeat Tom Pritchard in a dark match. Uh, and then we would all, oh, that was before, but after the show, uh, finishes the pay-per-view Austin beats Goldust, Michaels beats mankind. Michaels is working more as a baby face here against mankind than maybe he was on the pay-per-view, but when a fan throws a soda at him, he catches it, gives the fan a finger. Sonny's here too, dressed as Santa, handing out some WWF merchandise to fans. Ho, ho, ho. 
Alrighty. And, uh, that's the end of in your house. It's time. I wanted to talk about the fallout, but Lord it's way past your bedtime. It's past midnight here. Uh, we should probably wrap this one up. I appreciate you making time given the circumstances of, of what's happened and, and your marathon day. <laughs> Thanks for fitting us in here today, dude. Well, I, I appreciate everyone being patient with us as well. And, uh, it's as we tried a couple of times this week and just, uh, my schedule became uh, quite erratic and, uh, <laughs> we tried last night. Neither one of us were in any shape by the time that, uh, I reached out to you and I was like, uh, we planned on doing it a little different folks and just couldn't happen. And I said, well, I'll wake up early and do it, but you were already up early doing other things. And, uh, so now here we are and I greatly appreciate the patience and greatly appreciate everyone tuning in and listening to us and by God downloading us. And, uh, for that, I do love y'all and, and I appreciate it. Well, safe travels to uh, Cabo Wabo. Hope you have a good time and uh, tell the fam I said hello. And sometime soon, we got to get together and tell some more Jack Lanza stories. So, in your travels, I know you carry around those uh, something to wrestle pads. Jot down a little note or two so we can uh, relive some of Mr. Lanza's heyday and, and fun times here on the show and celebrate his life a little bit. And we'll be back next week with a really fun show. Bruce, I know you've. You're so tickled with what we're doing next week. You've been talking about it constantly, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's Shawn Michaels, 1996. <laughs> I know you had no idea. Wait a minute. I thought, when, I thought we were doing this, ask me anything thing. Oh, we're doing that for Bruce Pritchard's wrestling new year's Eve instead of what was that guy's rocking new year's Eve? What was his name? Dick Clark. Yeah. We're going to get, did there. you actually ask who did new year's rocking Eve? Well, I just know when I made that parallel before you were like, who'd he ever beat or something like that? Well, he never beat anybody, but it was Dick Clark for fuck's sake. How many times is he in the karate black belt hall of fame? Hypothetical. Oh yeah. No, not even, not even. I don't even think he's ever been there. Well, it wouldn't surprise me, but we're glad yeah. that you made it here today. Uh, maybe a little, uh, better late than never. And Hey, you know what? For Skype on a goddamn cell phone, didn't sound all that bad for most of the show. So kudos to you guys on Skype. How about that? I'm no kidding. Cause I was a little concerned. We'll be back next week, boys and girls talking Sean Michaels in 1996. And then stay tuned. We've got a fun watch along planned and we'll wrap it up with Bruce Pritchard's rock and wrestling new year's Eve right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Rock on. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.